Welcome to our Painesville Assembly of God podcast. Our desire is to connect people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If this message touches your heart, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at info at or visit PainesvilleAG.com. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to your faith. Today, we are excited um, to have some guests with us today, and they're right here uh, from Ohio, actually from uh, the Cleveland area, uh, one of our AG churches, Bethel Christian Church in Parma, and uh, God has been doing a work in their lives, and uh, I'm not going to steal their thunder, um, but uh, I'll let them share this morning what God has been doing in their lives, but uh, Daniel and Sarah uh, Connor are going to come today. And uh, Daniel's going to share with us. So Daniel, will you come? Will you give a warm Painesville Assembly of God? Welcome to Daniel Connor, missionary to France, Daniel and Sarah. Thank you, Pastor. We're excited to be here. Um, it was not a far drive at all. I love the snow, so it was great. Um, so we are, uh, like I said, Daniel and Sarah Connor getting ready to plant churches in the country of France. Now, I heard that you guys have had a former pastor who is in France um, and so that is awesome. Um, what's really big about that, especially going out from the, the 90s and early 2000s, is back then there used to be a big stigmatism in the church against missionaries going to Europe because everyone thought that all the Christians were there. But if you know anything about Europe today, if you see anything in the news at all, you know that Europe is very, very secular, very post-Christian, um, and they do not have... Uh, most of them do not have the Christian faith anymore. I want to share a little bit about our family. You can see we have three little ones. We brought our youngest with us today. This is James. He is currently teething, so he's been a little fussy. Um, but we also have Sophia, who just turned four, and Emily, who's two and a half, and James is ten months. So we have our hands very full. Um, God has blessed our family. You can go to the, the next slide. There's another picture of our little kiddos there. Um, and so... They're awesome. They are uh, not just along for the ride, but we honestly believe that they are called just as much as we are. And as a whole family, we are going to France. Uh, it's funny. Some people ask us if we're taking our kids. I'm like, if you were to move to Texas, I hope you'd take your kids. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, I didn't think it was an option. Uh, so, so, yeah, we'll, we'll pick them up when they're full grown. Uh, but uh, we're really excited. I want to share a little bit about our story and how we got called to France. But before we do, uh, if we go to the next slide, if you guys wanted to, you could take out your cell phones right now um, and have an opportunity to join our Facebook or our Instagram. Um, back in the day, you'd have missionaries have an email list out in the back, but what happens is if you, if you write it with a pen or pencil and I can't read it or I get one letter wrong, then I get the entire email wrong. Um, and so what we found is really effective because only 9% of those emails are open. A study was done. And so what's really effective is you're on social media all the time. I know you guys are. And some of you are like, no, I'm not. It's okay. So while you're on social media, you don't have to open or click an attachment or anything. If you join our group um, on social media, then as you're scrolling and you see your friend's dog uh, and the pictures of that and your uh, pictures of, you know, your neighbor's kid, uh, then you'll see pictures of what God is doing in France. Uh, if you prefer to still uh, do the email way and you don't have Facebook or Instagram, that's completely fine. We have all of our information on the back. So I encourage all of you to get our prayer cards. We have, we have enough for all of you. Would you please be praying over our family? But on the back, we have our email address. What I tell people is would you just simply 
type that email address in and email me and just tell me you want to be on the newsletter. What happens is actually um, then because you emailed me first, you won't get, um, when I send my newsletter to you, it won't go to spam. Because if you just send a newsletter out to the blue to a random person, then most of the time it actually just goes to spam. So that's a great way. But if maybe you have Facebook or Instagram on your computer and not on your phone with you right now, our information is also on the back right there as well. We also have an interactive QR code. That's just a little bit about that or how to stay connected. I want to share a little bit of how my wife and I got called to France because I know what most people think immediately when we say that we're going to France is they immediately think, well, why are you going to France? And for them, it doesn't make sense. And so we're going to share with that. Um, there are two reasons, and I'll tell you right now that the first and most important reason is the calling of God. We're going because God has called us to go. Uh, when I was in the sixth grade, I was alone in my room reading the Bible, and I felt God speaking to me that if he can use Paul, who considered himself to be of chief of sinners, then he can use me. And I said, Lord, I'm willing. And it started with that. I knew that that day that God was calling me to be a missionary. I'm going to let my wife share her, her calling. Um, Daniel grew up in a Christian home. I did not grow up in a Christian home. And uh, so I grew up in a really happy home, but I always felt like something was missing in my life. And that didn't make any sense because from the outside, it looked like I had everything I needed. I didn't know why I felt like that until I was in high school. There was this girl that sat behind me in history class, and she kept inviting me to her youth group. And every week, I would come up with some excuse as to why I couldn't go. Too much homework, got to spend time with my family, got to do chores, whatever. Until finally one week, I finally said yes because I just wanted her to stop asking me. <laughs> and I went to her youth group that night and I met Jesus and he totally changed my life. I started going to youth group every single week and eventually that turned into going to church every Sunday. And through that, when I was 16, I had the opportunity to go on a short-term missions trip to El Salvador. And when I got home from that missions trip, I knew God was calling me into missions. Um, but I'm really introverted. I don't, I'm shy. I don't like to talk in front of people. And I was like, God, are you sure? <laughs> me? Um, and he said yes. So I said yes. <laughs> What's really cool about that story is the friend who invited her to youth group also did not grow up in a Christian home. Someone else had invited her. And it was of a friend who invited a friend. And I want to encourage you, you never know what's going to happen when you invite a friend to a, a chili cook-off or, or something going on in the church. You never know what's going to happen and how God is going to use that. And so actually, one by one, uh, my wife's entire family came to Jesus. Even her mom being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And actually, I got to lead my father-in-law to the Lord four years ago. He was the last piece of the puzzle. And now her entire family is saved because of a friend, invited a friend, invited a friend. Yeah, God is good. Um, and so we, we met at, at Bible College. We were at Agora with Randy Young, a satellite campus out of Valley Forge, just right there in Cleveland. And uh, we knew we were both called to missions, but we didn't know where. And so we actually were youth pastors in the Cleveland area for the past six years. We were at both Bethany and at Rockside. Um, combined, we were actually on staff at both churches at the same time, combining youth ministries and combining budgets and resources to reach more students in Cleveland. Um, and so I would go into the bad areas of Cleveland. I would pick up a whole car full of kids. And, um, you know, we, we are reaching out to those kids uh, that need Jesus. So we did that for the past six years, but we didn't know where we're supposed to go. We knew we're called to missions until about four years ago, actually at ministers retreat, which, uh, pastor and I, and, and uh, some uh, pastors all over Ohio just got back from an amazing time of just, just refilling your cup as pastors, you're constantly pouring it out, but you need times to fill it back up. And so, uh, four years ago, we're at ministers retreat in the middle of worship before the speaker even came up just in the middle of worship. I had a vision of the French flag. 
And I was absolutely blown away. I, I'm not a vision guy. It's not like I have one every week. It was a big deal. I'm like, God, if you're speaking to me, if you're calling me to go to France, I'll go. But I want to make sure this is from you. And I want to encourage you today. God is still speaking. Um, and, and I absolutely believe God is still calling. And my heart today is not just see how we can get funds. But I know that there's some people in this room and in the next service as well that God may be calling to missions. Um, and so uh, God is going to use all of you personally in your own life and your own connections too to reach people that I can never reach. Um, and so what's, what's really cool is, is I honestly believe God is still speaking, but we always line it up with the word of God. Even if one day you hear an audible voice, if it doesn't line up with the word of God, it's not from God. And so it always is founded back in scripture. So I want to make sure this is from God. And I asked my wife after service, I said, Hey, did God tell you where we're called to go for missions? And she said, no, but in the middle of worship, I felt God convicting me saying, you need to pray again. You need to ask again where you're called to go. And so she was praying. She wasn't even singing. The entire time during worship, she was just praying that God would speak and tell us where we're supposed to go. And I got the answer. That still wasn't good enough for me. I wanted to make sure that this was from God. And so I, I'm like Gideon putting the fleece out again. And so I said, you know what? I'm not going to tell you the country. I want you to hear from God directly. Because here's what's important. When ministry gets tough, and regardless where you go, it's going to get tough. I don't want my wife to rely on her husband's vision. She's called just as much as I am. This is not my thing. My kids are called just as much as I am. And so I wanted her to have that God moment that she can hold on to. And so we prayed. And I want to tell you, church, God answers prayer. A few weeks went by and, and we spoke. She said, I think God called me or, or spoke to me a place that we never talked about before. I said, that's exactly how it was for me. We talked about so many countries, but we never talked about France. So we both wrote it down on a post-it note. And I was so nervous. Um, I was not going to even say it out loud. I'm thinking, what if we have a different country? I mean, odds are pretty high, right, that we're going to have a different country written. But then I got even more nervous and more afraid. What if we have the same country? That's scarier. You know what I mean? Like, that's way, because there's, there's no backing out now. It's like, if you have the same country, you're like, all right, we're going. You know, it's like Nineveh with Jonah. It's like, fish or not, we're going, you know. Um, and so that's exactly what happened. God has called us to France. And that is the number one reason why we're going is because we know that God has called us to France. Um, we both had France written down. The second reason is actually uh, really important as well, is that there is a great need in France. Uh, most people today realize that Europe is secular. Uh, I knew that, but until I actually started looking into it, I didn't realize how far they had gone. Even from 10 years ago, they've completely nosedived in Christianity. Right now, the European average for Christianity is 3%. The European average across the board for Islam is 4%. They have officially surpassed the Christians um, in, in Europe, but it's still not a Muslim uh, continent. It's a, it's a secular continent. That's what really is actually outplacing the Christians is secularism. France right now is actually the most secular country tied with the Czech Republic that's in Europe. Um, they currently have only 1.2% Christians. If you want, you can take them now. <laughs> Give it up for my baby and Sarah. You guys say great. <laughs> He's normally like a super good baby, just teething and everything. Um, and so France right now is only 1.2% Christians. That means if there were 100 French people in this room, only one of them would have a relationship with Jesus. I mean, that's, I mean, that's incredible. I tell people, this is, not, this is not your grandfather's France from World War II. I mean, this is a completely different thing. Um, and right now, the, the, France has the most Muslims out of any European country uh, because they colonized much of Africa and, and much of the Middle East. And so a lot of the refugees, they actually speak French as a trade language. So they go to France first. And so France right now has 8% of their population is Muslim. Eight times as many Muslims as are Christians. Um, and that's where France is at today. And it is actually speculated that within a generation or two, if things don't change, France will become the first country in Europe to become a Muslim country, just like in the Middle East. Um, so that's the reality right now. So France is actually a huge mission field, a huge opportunity, because these Muslims that we can reach out to, they don't have to be afraid when they accept Jesus to lose their job. 
to lose their family or to lose their home because all that's already left behind in the Middle East. And so there's huge opportunities. But also as we go, people tell us all the time, as much as you want to reach out to everyone that's coming into France, don't forget about the French themselves. Because they need to hear about Jesus. They need to know, even if they have a cold shoulder to the gospel. You're going to see pictures of empty, old, abandoned churches in France. The reality is people, when they think of France, they think of Europe, they're like, wow, the churches are so beautiful. And the saying is this in Europe. There's churches everywhere, but there's Christians nowhere. And that's the reality is, is that uh, an empty church building is not an adequate witness of the gospel. These places that are abandoned or empty, some of them may be open as a museum. But let me tell you, a museum is not access to the gospel. A museum is where you can pay to see how they worship God a few hundred years ago. But it's not a place that's actively shaping the community that they live to see lives transformed and changed just like my wife and her entire family. They're, they don't have that right now. So as we're going to plant churches... Um, let me tell you, if you, if we are somehow Billy Graham and we can go and have these huge services and get a bunch of people saved, statistically, what happens to those numbers of people that get saved that never get plugged into a church? They fizzle out, they fade out. And, and that's in the moments, those are the seeds on the rocks. So we know that if there's no local body of believers that someone can get plugged into, then nothing's going to happen. And so we're starting with the very basic thing in missions, which is planting churches because they don't have a lot of churches. Um, right now in, in France, as we're going, we tell people we're planting churches, but we're not building buildings. We're not going to build cathedrals. They have enough of those. We're going to build the body of Christ that's actively shaping their community. As you've seen, a lot of churches are trying to figure out what do we do with all these empty buildings? Because um, you can only have an, an empty building on every corner. I mean, that's prime real estate. You can only have a museum. Uh, so many museums, you can't have them on every corner. That's not uh, applicable. It's not going to work and it's self-sustaining. So uh, here's just an, one example. It's happening all over Europe. They're trying to figure out what do we do with all these buildings? We're not going to have church because there's no Christians. So this one actually uh, is a historic church that for generations people gave their lives to Jesus and were transformed. But now it's a skate park. You can see they painted over the stained glass with the colors and there's a half pipe in the middle and a guy on the skateboard. This is not unusual all across Europe. It's not unusual at all. Uh, we know a, a missionary in Ireland that was telling us right at the altars where people gave their lives to Jesus for generations. There's now a stripper pole because it's a club. And that's just the reality all across the board in Europe. So they have the church buildings, but I want to encourage you today, that's not an adequate witness of the gospel. Um, and so I'll, I'll, you can go to the next one as well. Uh, for me, this is just a beautiful picture of Christianity in France. You can tell they have a beautiful history. It was once alive with the gospel, but today is empty. Our theme verse is this. Like I said, I encourage you to get a prayer card, but our theme verse is Daniel 9, 17. It's on the back, and we ask that you would pray over this for France. It says, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. That's our theme verse. You know why? Because I'm not here to argue whether France has or hasn't a sanctuary. They do. They have a sanctuary. They have a lot of them, but they're desolate. Would you pray for France to have a reawakening of the gospel for Europe and really the whole world? I can't think of a single country. As some missionaries, some people think missionaries are in competition of what countries. We're not. Actually, uh, it's funny. There's, there's probably a few missionaries out in the missions world that actually support us, and we support some missionaries. I've actually never met a single missionary that doesn't actually personally support other missionaries because we, we believe in it. We're not just called to go. We're called to give. And, and so I can't think of a single country around the world that doesn't need an adequate witness of the gospel. 
Um, as you pray for our family, one of the prayer points is at, right now we're 50% uh, funded, which is awesome. We've been fundraising for a year, but we also had a baby right as we started. Uh, so that's been awesome. Uh, just a prayer point. Uh, as churches like you or even people like you as well pick us up, um, every time we get $100 a month in monthly commitments, that's 1% of our budget. So it's really easy to keep track of. Um, so would you just pray for our family? Uh, but I, I'll tell people all the time, my finances aren't, aren't the main concern. I'm going to get there. I, I know God's calling us, but my concern is that we're still on fire for Jesus when we get there. My concern is that I still have a healthy marriage when we get there, uh, as my family as we get there, and, and that we're not falling apart. Um, some missionaries can get so focused on itineration that we lose sight of our relationship with Jesus, and that's, I don't want to do that. I want to be on fire for Jesus when we get there. So would you pray for our family, and would you pray for France to have a reawakening of the gospel? We take a moment right now. And just pray for the service. Um, and today's message is harvest time. Let's just have a moment right now. We're going to bow our heads and, and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, we just come before you, God. Lord, we thank you for who you are, Lord. You are on the throne. And you're not surprised by the countries around the world, Lord, that are desperate for you, that need an adequate witness of the gospel. Lord, that were even once alive with the gospel, but now are not. God, Lord, I pray right now, Lord, would you open our hearts, would you open our minds, God, would you open up our spiritual eyes to, th to see the things that we cannot see. God, I pray right now that as we get into the word, God, I pray that as we read things, Lord, that maybe make us uncomfortable, or maybe things that we disagree with, God, I pray that we won't gloss over it, Lord, that we won't ignore that scripture, God, I pray that we won't explain it away and say that it doesn't apply to our generation. God, Lord, I pray that we will be the one to change to your unchanging word. God, will we tr be transformed and conformed to your word, God? of what you say in your word. Would you be with this Father? In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Title of my message today is called Harvest Time. And you can turn to John 4.35. It will be up on the screen. But as I do, I'm going to share with you um, uh, of, of how France got to where they're at today. Some people say, well, how could they get there? Because they were just so Christian recently. And actually, there's a few different things. But I think in the book of Exodus... You have Moses that leads the Israelites through the Red Sea. And you have Joshua in the book of Joshua that leads the Israelites through the Jordan. And, and they conquer the promised land. And, and they have what God promised them. But then the book of Judges comes. And the book of Judges says, A generation grew up that did not know God. All these great miracles had just happened. And they saw what God had, had moved. And, and, they, and they were dedicated to God. And then they, another generation comes up. That doesn't know God. And that's exactly what has happened in Europe. Um, and, and before I get into the message here, as you're turning there, I want to share a little bit briefly about um, how the French Revolution still actually um, influences France today. You think of our American Revolution, which is actually even before then, um, still influences today. Not every principle, but most principles uh, of the American Revolution were biblical principles. Most of them uh, founded on the fact that the government has no business telling the church how to worship God, that the separation of church and state was for our benefit. Um, and, and so the French Revolution was actually the opposite. It was the same king who actually allied with us during the Revolutionary War. Our only ally was France. Um, that same king was the one that they beheaded in the guillotine. Uh, but it was very anti-God. Um, when they had the revolution, the government wanted full control over the church. What they actually did is they abolished the tithe. It was illegal to tithe during the revolution for a few years. Um, they had confiscated all church property, um, all hospitals and monasteries and schools. They, uh, they, they got rid of it, all of it from the church. They, they didn't want to just get rid of Christianity, but they wanted to replace it with something. So they had this thing called the cult of reason. And even churches like Notre Dame were stripped bare and they put in these idols from the revolution that they would worship and that they would pray to. Um, they, they got rid of their calendar in France because it starts with Jesus' birth and we can't have that. 
So they had a new calendar with year one being the year of the revolution. Uh, they actually, uh, any street name, anything that had a- any name to do with Christianity at all, they renamed it because they didn't want uh, France to have any history and any ties with Christianity. They actually, I didn't even know you could do this. They got rid of the seven-day week in France for a few years. They had 10-day weeks because they wanted Sundays eliminated. That's how secular and anti-God that they were in France. Thousands of, of pastors and priests were, were killed during the revolution, and hundreds of thousands of Christians were banished from the country that actually never returned. So there was a systematic, uh, um, intentional, brutal wiping out of the church in France uh, when they had their revolution. You think of like the rough Russian Revolution, it was very similar. And it was actually Napoleon, of all people, when he rose to power, restored some life to the church, but he still says, you swear to me and not to God. And that's been the relationship of the church and the government in France ever since. Uh, it's not been an easy one. So there, it wasn't just a slow fade. There was a, a period of time where it was a systematic, brutal wiping out. So there's just a little bit of context there. All right, as we get into the word today, my message is called Harvest Time. And today we're going to be looking over the words of Jesus concerning the harvest. We're going to look over three things today. We're going to keep going back over them. We're going to look at its plentifulness, its window of opportunity, and its lack of workers. Let's look at John 4.35 and see what Jesus says. It says, do you not say there yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Here's what's really cool about that passage compared to other passages and scriptures that we know the time of year that Jesus was saying this. We know that it was four months out from the harvest. We don't know that about every other saying that he has, but we know that Jesus constantly is using examples from around him, whether it's a well of water, he talks about running water that never runs out and the spiritual water, or whether it's people fishing for fish, he talks about fishing for men, but Jesus is standing next to a field and you don't have to go far in Ohio to find a field, right? You don't have to go very far at all. And we have our signs, you know, knee high by 4th of July. We have our signs to tell how far the harvest is away. And Jesus is saying, listen, the, the harvest is four months from now. You can see that pretty clearly. Because if it were today, it would be all hands on deck. But you can see you have four months, but I tell you if, you, if you look up as if with your spiritual eyes, you can see that the harvest is today. The harvest is already upon us. And so today we're going to talk about that. Uh, but let's talk about a window of opportunity. Could a farmer just wait whenever he wanted to to harvest his crops? Think about it. If the harvest was today, could a farmer say, you know what? I'm really busy. I'm going to come back a few months from now. And I hope that these ripe crops are still ripe when I get back. The reality is that a farmer can never do that. He cannot even wait uh, or waste a few weeks or even a few days. There is no time to delay. I think of... Um, I make, I make homemade guacamole, and it's incredible. It's amazing. I don't want to brag. Um, but I also make homemade hummus, and my dad makes homemade salsa. I have not ventured out into that. But for me, that's like the trinity of snacks. I love the snack, and I should probably weigh a lot more than I do. Actually, I'm well over 200. I don't probably look it, but I'm over 200 pounds. I'm working on that. And it's, I, it's, I just keep having kids, and for me, it's like the sympathy weight. Every time my wife gets pregnant, I gain weight. Anyways, guacamole does not last like, at all. If you ever made guacamole, and I'm not talking like Chipotle guacamole because they have a little bit of preserves in it that lasts for a day. But if you make homemade guacamole, you have like six seconds to eat that thing and it's bad. I mean, if you look away, you look away for a second, it's already going bad. You can, there's no leftover guacamole. If you ever made homemade guacamole, there's no leftover. I'll buy a bag from the store and as I'm walking by, like there's only one day that's it's going to be ripe. So I'm walking by and it's not good, it's not good. And then it's, it like looks at me, it's like you will eat me today or regret it tomorrow. There's, there's only one day to eat it. They're, they're, they're ripe so quick. There's an opportunity to eat that. I think of an apple. Take a bite of an apple and set it on a counter and come back six hours later. Don't eat that apple, right? That's not the same apple it once was before you took a bite because there's now a window of opportunity to finish it. 
And that's exactly how the harvest is. There is a window of opportunity and it can be missed. That's what we need to see today. But what about workers? Let's say you're a farmer and you're ready. You're not going, you're not leaving. You're ready today because today is the harvest. But you yourself go out and you have no help. You have no workers, servants, machines, laborers. You have, you have no one to help you at all. And one by one, Farmer Brown is out there all day long, harvesting crops, putting it into his basket, doing whatever he can. What's going to happen? Well, everything that he harvested will be harvested, but he'll never be able to bring in a full harvest unless he has help, unless he multiplies himself, unless there are workers and servants, machines and laborers. He alone is not capable in bringing in a full harvest. You can't just be ready. It's not just good enough that you're ready. You need help. We cannot do it alone. So if you walk away with anything today, it's these three points up here. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is ready. And the harvest needs workers. And you can keep this up here for, for like two minutes. We're going to talk about these three things right now. I'm going to make some bold statements, but we're going to back it up with scripture. Okay, you ready? The harvest is plentiful. There's nothing you can do about it. Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, and whether you even pray for it or not, which I believe in prayer uh, and the power of prayer, but we need to pray with direction. I'll tell you, you don't need to pray that the harvest is plentiful. Here's why. It already is. You don't need to pray that there's more lost people in the world. Trust me, we have enough lost people. Don't pray that there's more, okay? All right. The harvest is plentiful. There's nothing, that's just a given statement in scripture. The harvest is plentiful. We don't have to worry about it being plentiful. It is. Second one, the harvest is ready. Whether you like it or not, and whether you know it or not, and whether you even pray for it or not, the harvest is plentiful. There's nothing we can do about it. That is also, for this day and age that we live in, that's a given in Scripture. The harvest will be, is, is plentiful and the harvest is ready. But the third point is so important because it does matter. It does matter whether we know it or not. It does matter whether we like it or not or whether we even pray for it or not. That's what Jesus tells us to pray for is that there's workers. It matters that there are workers or not because that's, our, that's, that's basically the ball in our court. And we don't want to drop the ball. So we're going to look at these three points starting with point number one. The harvest is plentiful. Matthew 9, 35 to 38 says this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray, pray for what? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. It is because the harvest is ready. It is because the harvest is plentiful that Jesus says we need to pray for workers because the first two are given. When we look at the stories of Jesus traveling from one city to the next, we see that there's non-stop work to be done. We see Jesus healing a woman, bleeding for 12 years, on the way to go heal someone else. We see Jesus teaching and preaching to those who are ready to repent. I can tell you right now, you don't have to open up your eyes long to see that America needs to turn to Jesus. That France, the whole world needs to turn to Jesus. We need to reawaken the gospel in this world. This is a sad fact, but we will not run out of people for the rest of our lives to witness to. Think about that. You can tell a new person every single day about Jesus, not preaching at them, but lovingly tell them the good news of Jesus, that he died for their sins. Every single day you can tell a new person, each one of us, and we would never run out of a person to tell. You realize that? It's not like we have to wait. Well, I'm going to run out of people if I tell too many people. No, that you're not. You're not going to run out. But it's a sad fact because we also don't have, we don't have all day. We don't have all eternity to tell them. We don't know when that's going to end. But I can tell you right now that you'll never run out of someone to tell about Jesus. Point number two, the harvest is ready. We need to realize that the harvest is ready. 
now. In terms of missions and around the world and about church planting in America or any country, the harvest is ready. We need to see that. We need to see that right now that there are opportunities and there's windows that if we, if, if we don't seize the moment, we're going to miss it. There's opportunities and windows of life that if you don't seize it, you're going to miss it. There's some things where, like, um, my grandparents, they had two kids. One of them was my mom, and I'm alive because they had kids. It's great. But they're never going to have another kid. They're in their 80s. Unless God does Abraham and Sarah stuff again, like, that's not going to happen, you know? <laughs> and they, they had as many as they wanted, but there's an opportunity to do that. And it may sound sad to say it in our society any, anything with finality, but they're never going to have the opportunity again. If you have an oil change in your car that needs to be done, and you don't get it done, and you wait too long, you might not have a car. Right? That car may be in a junkyard one day, and the opportunity to get something done will be missed. And what I'm trying to say here today is that in missions, in, the, in windows for some countries and some people groups, there is an adequate uh, a window of time where it's, this is the right time. And if we miss the opportunity, we might not get another one. We have to realize that in missions. John 9.4, and this is actually a pretty heavy-handed verse, but it looks light on the surface. He says, we must work with the works of him who sent me. This is Jesus talking. So he must work with the works of God who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, when Jesus came on the earth, um, and theologically, it symbolizes daytime. And so, uh, and, and then he ascended uh, on the throne. And so it's actually daytime right now until Jesus comes back. Then theologically speaking, it's an analogy that it'll be nighttime. And so what happens is you can be out in the field all day long harvesting crops. But back in the day, you're not going to light a torch and, and burn all the crops. When it's nighttime, you put your tools down and you come home. And so for us, it's been daytime for 2,000 years, and we're able to, to harvest the crops of souls. We're able to reach people, but Jesus is saying, listen, nighttime is going to come, and you're going to have to put your tools down, and that's going to be it. Nighttime is going to come, and the reality is it's been daytime for 2,000 years, and some of us live like it's going to be daytime forever. And it's probably evening, I don't know, oh, no one knows the time, but it's probably evening, and we just think it's going to be daytime forever. And Jesus is warning us, listen, I'm going to come back. It's daytime right now. We can do the works of God, but night is going to come when we cannot work. You know, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he reads this list from Isaiah about he's going to set the captive free and open up the eyes of the blind and, and heal the sick and, and do all these different things. You understand that there's so many uh, uh, um, um, prophecies throughout the Bible, so many prophecies in the Old Testament, and, and no other religion even comes close. It blows it out of the water, the fact that Jesus fulfilled these. But he fulfilled half of them. You know, that Jesus is reading uh, uh, this list of prophecies. He actually stops halfway through. You know why? It's because the other half is for the second coming. Because Jesus is going to come back because it actually takes a little bit of a darker tone because the second part is that he's going to come to rule and to reign. He's going to come to harvest his church and, and call them home. And we need to realize that, that revelation is written in a different tone that Jesus is going to come back. I love the picture of Jesus holding a lamb because like he's the lamb that was slain, but also he's the shepherd and we're the lambs and it's just a cool picture. But second coming of Jesus this is the same Jesus, but he's not coming back to hold your lamb. I mean, you, you read the tone that revelation was written in. You read the tone of Jesus saying, I'm coming back for my church for a bride that's spotless. Jesus is coming back. He was already the lamb that was slain, but he's coming back to bring his church home. And we need to realize that that time is taking down to reach these people, to reach these people groups. God help us if we neglect uh, these windows of opportunity. And I honestly believe that God is a God of second chances. But God help us if we miss that second chance. God help us if we neglect to feed the poor. Or if we don't seek justice for the oppressed and for the widowed. Or if we continue to approve of rampant sin in our society. James 1.27 I feel like is probably the most timely verse for America right now. 
This is what it says, and it's a huge, James really builds it up. It's a huge statement. You know whatever he's going to say is so important when he builds it up this way. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. I mean, that, how can you build it up even more? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And he gives us two things. He says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and, not or, but and, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Here's the problem is you have half America that says, you know what, why don't we just have justice, 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 and we'll feed the poor, but we don't have to worry about sin or any of that. And the other half is saying, you know what, let's just, us four, no more, we're going to have a holy huddle and not worry about the poor, not worry about helping them, we're just going to be holy. And, and actually, which is the Pharisees, that's what they did. They were all so holy that Jesus said, if your holiness doesn't surpass the Pharisees, you can't go to heaven. They're, they're holiness, but they wouldn't lift a finger to help the widow. That's what Jesus said. So actually, James is saying, listen, you need the whole picture because you need the whole gospel. We have to care about the poor. We have to care about the press. We have to care about justice. And, not or, but and, we have to be holy before a holy God. It matters. Holiness matters. Justice matters. Understanding that God's heart breaks for the orphan and for the widowed. And God heart, God, his heart breaks for those that are unholy and, and fallen away from him because he loves them. Let me tell you, that we have to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. God help us if we miss those opportunities. Today I want to share a story with you about some of the rudest people I've ever met. Who loves rude people? Aren't they, the, aren't they the best? They brighten your day. You're having a great day and then bam, you run into some rude people. So um, I always joke because every year my wife has her annual baby. It just seems like every year we're having another one. And when I say that, people ask her, are you pregnant? And I'm like, I'm sorry, babe, I don't mean to, she's not pregnant. But we just have, you know, have a 10-month-old. But every time I have any family story, my wife is always pregnant in the story. So in this story, my wife is pregnant. It was with our first. And we're on vacation to Fort Lauderdale. And we're youth pastors in Cleveland. And we just arrived. She's pregnant. She's off to the side sitting down with our luggage. And I'm in line for the rental car. It's a long line. I'm not in a hurry. There's like 30 people in, in front of us. It's going to take some time. But have you ever been in line and the people behind you are in a hurry? Like in it, like in a big hurry. Yeah. So it's, it's not fun when someone behind you is in a hurry. And I want to tell him, listen, buddy, you're not going to get there any quicker. You have to wait for everyone to go. And so I'm in line and, and I kid you not, the person right in front of me is right there and I'm standing in line and the guy comes behind me and it's fine. Like he's, he's like a bigger guy, really sweaty, which is absolutely fine. But I'm not even kidding. His gut is touching my back. Like he gets that close where his gut is literally touching my back. And I'm, and I immediately, the guy in front of me had not moved, but he immediately, I took the signal. Okay. This guy's in a hurry. And so I, I like inch forward and I kid you not, this guy inch forward as well. Like there was no, there was no chill. This guy was in such a hurry, huffing and puffing away, really sweaty. I'm not having a good time. And so my back is getting sweaty, but it's not my sweat. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, it, it's not going well. So the guy moves forward and I'm thinking, okay, okay. And he moves forward, I'm thinking, I'll do this. So I, I take a step, and I do one of these. I put my arm out, you know, and I have my elbow going. And I, I kid you not, my elbow is just rubbing up against his belly. And I'm just like, what is going on? Like, did someone say something? Like, I don't want to say anything. It's just, I wish it was, you know, I, I don't like COVID. But this story was before COVID, and it just amplifies it. I wish I could say six feet. I could not. You have those people that, you know, have the no personal space. Like, I can tell you had for breakfast last week. This guy was like that. So... We're going in line, and the line's moving up, and like, you know, we're doing our dance and, and whatnot, and it, it gets about halfway there, and um, 
his wife was there and she was just complaining. I mean, who loves to listen to people complain? Isn't that also the best? And I feel bad for the people that are like on the help desk because I'm like, listen, it's not your fault. It's your company's fault. It's not your fault. You know? And so uh, she was just complaining. Oh, the airplane was too long and this was too hot and this was too cold. And on and on, she just starts complaining and I'm just taking it. Uh, she's not complaining to me. She's just like, just complaining, you know? And so then she starts complaining about kids. And I love kids. And so for me, that was like the line where I'm like, I hadn't said a single word this entire time. I was just ready to, to finish up, get my bags and, and go to our hotel. And so she starts complaining about kids and who would bring their kids on the airplane and blah, 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 blah. And I didn't say this, but I'm thinking, I don't know, man. Like, trust me, no one wants to bring their kids on the airplane. Have you seen Home Alone 2? We don't want to leave them in New York. You know, it's like, you're just trying to survive. So I decided I'm going to say something for the first time. And so this is the first thing I said. I looked her dead in the eyes. I said, well, you were a kid once, right? And, I, and without hesitation, it caught me so off guard. Without hesitation, she looked me in the eyes and she said, no, I wasn't. <laughs> what do you do with that, right? You know, I never met anyone that wasn't a kid. And so we go back to the line and we're doing our thing, you know, and the line keeps moving. I'm, I'm not having a good time. You know? <laughs> and, and up to that point, that was our entire conversation. You were a kid once? No, I wasn't. Cool. So it keeps moving on, and it was so awkward um, that she had to say something. I wasn't going to break the ice. My generation won't do that. So she was going to have to break the tension. It was so awkward. And she finally breaks, like, ten people uh, up the line. And she says, you're right. You're right. I was a kid. I, I, I was not very shocked or surprised. <laughs> And, and so basically out of that, we, I was like, you know what, I, I, I kind of figured. And, and so we kind of had a little bit of small talk and we started talking about, you know, where I'm from and my wife and I were youth pastors in Cleveland and we're here on vacation and we're having a baby, yada, yada. And then the next thing that she said, explaining why they were there, completely changed the way I see people. She said, we're looking for my son. She said, our son ran away from home, and the last that we heard is that he's in Fort Lauderdale. And so their plan, their only plan, when they get the rental car in 15 minutes, was to start driving down every street. That was it. They had no leads other than that their son was in Fort Lauderdale. And immediately, my heart broke for these people, and, and there was so much that was running through my mind. I said, God, would you forgive me because I had judged them? Even though your scripture says not to. I'd sized them up. And I thought I was better than them. And I, know, and I can just tell you right now, you have no idea what someone is going through. You may think you know. You have no idea. When someone's being rude to you in the store or something, you never know. But God had opened up a window of, of, of what they were walking through. And I could see that. No wonder they were in such a hurry. No wonder that kids were annoying them because they didn't have theirs. I was so glad I hadn't said anything worse. I got to pray with him right there and I said, you're going ahead of me because you're looking for your son. I'm, I'm here on vacation with my wife. In that moment, it's like God had showed me his love for us. This is a true story. You can ask my wife. Uh, and so in, in that moment, I'm thinking, this, this is the prodigal son and the father. This is the shepherd that leaves the 99 and is looking after the one. It doesn't matter how reckless the story mattered. It doesn't matter how reckless their plan was. It doesn't matter that their plan didn't make any sense. The only thing that mattered is my son is missing. And as I thought about it, I said, God, would you give me a passion for the loss like these parents have for their son? Because what would it take for someone to buy a one-way ticket to the other end of the country? Or maybe the, the other end of the world? What would it take? I'm going to tell you right now. It's not statistics. 
We don't care about statistics. We don't care about numbers. If it was your son or your daughter, you would be going. If it was my son or my daughter, I would be going. I didn't care how foolish it sounded or, or what was going to happen or what I even did when I got there. If that was my son or daughter, I would be missing. I want to encourage you right now. Everyone is someone's son and daughter. Everyone is God's son and daughter. And when you think about it, I say, God, can you show me the, the way that you see other people? That's how he sees them. That We know that God's heart breaks, right? God doesn't break, but his heart does. Okay, and I say, God, would you show me how, how you view other people that maybe don't look like me? Maybe don't dress like me or talk like me or maybe even vote like me. God's heart breaks for them that much. I want to encourage you today that there are lost people all around the world that need to hear about Jesus. And if that was my son or daughter, I would be going. I'm going to tell you right now that God has a passion for the lost like that. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is ready. But we don't understand that there is work to be done while it is still day. Point number three, the harvest needs workers. Everything in this message gets to this point that we need workers. That we can't just say, it's great that it's ready. It's great that it's plentiful. And then do nothing about it. And I love church history. I encourage every believer, if you're not already reading the word of God, get into the word of God. I tell people, if you're waiting for a sign from God to start reading your Bible, this is it. <laughs> get into the word of God. A few minutes a day, and you'll have read the Bible every three years. I get into the Word of God. Um, and so if you already are reading the Bible, I encourage Christians, would you get into, there's some amazing books in history about missionaries of the past 2,000 years. Church history will change your life. I got my dad to read a 500-page church history book that was in plain English, that was normal to read, but it starts in the book of Acts, and it feels like you're reading Acts, and it just never stops. It just keeps going. People, they understand how you're in Acts 28 and then 2008, and they don't understand anything in between. So I want to encourage you, if you already are reading your Bible, man, you can see that there's some amazing points where the church had amazing victories, but there's also some times where the church had dropped the ball. And we're going to look at that today. Looking at that verse one more time, Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. I want to tell you that Jesus knew that for 2,000 years of church history, that would be a reoccurring theme, that the labors would be few. He knew that. That there wouldn't be enough missionaries, there wouldn't be enough pastors and priests, there wouldn't be enough but he says, would you pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors in the harvest? When you send your kids to camp, don't just pray that they have fun. They will. Would you pray that God would be calling labors out into the field, out into the churches? Would you be praying for that? Let me tell you what's really cool about this is I challenge you to read your Bible. Most Christians, um, uh, I'll just tell you this right now, the Bible added the chapters and verses later on. It originally wasn't there, and I'm so thankful it is. I don't have to say the book of John five minutes in and then stop. I can say John 3.16, and I can quote any sentence in the Bible. It's super helpful. Here's what I'm getting at. Sometimes the chapter ends, and the story continues. And that's exactly what happens here, is the chapter, he says, would you pray for earnestly the Lord to harvest and send out laborers in the harvest? Chapter ends. Matthew 9 ends. And Christians close their book, and they go to bed. Or they're waking up and getting coffee or whatever. Well, the reality is, most Christians don't even know what happens next. But Jesus, it's the same story, different chapter, same story, keeps going. After he says that there won't be enough workers, and he says, would you pray for workers? The very next thing he does is he calls the 12 disciples. Jesus is setting an example for us and multiplying himself and saying, listen, even I, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and with God, is not going to do it alone. I'm going to multiply myself into the 12 and the 72, and I'm going to send myself out. Setting an example for us at the church for what do we do when we need help? Discipleship. What do we do when we need workers? Is we need to multiply ourselves and empower other people. He gave them his power that they would cast out demons, that they would heal with his power. He gave out authority. 
So he multiplies himself as an example. But let me tell you, there's always historically been a shortage of ministers in the church. Real quick, I can tell you about um, Russia and how a thousand years ago, how they came to the faith. Um, there's, there's different... Um, um, different places in time where people came to Jesus and historically people have come to Jesus in groups and it doesn't mean that each person didn't own the relationship with Jesus it just means that we're actually uh, the most individualistic society ever to exist is actually America right now um, and so the people would come to Jesus in groups and so Russia a thousand years ago in this new empire they wanted a religion to unify their country and their new uh, empire uh, their new emperor he didn't care if it was a true religion or not he just wanted a religion just for the benefit of unifying their country so they sent out a list. They sent out um, uh, these delegates to look at all these different religions and come back with a list of religions. They looked at everything from Hinduism and Buddhism to Zoroastrianism to, to Islam to Christianity. They looked at it all. And they came back with a report. And let me tell you, when you compare Jesus to anything else, nothing, compel, no, nothing even uh, comes close in comparison. Everything pales. And so they looked, and just like the Brian church that says, we're not going to accept Jesus for a moment. Let's look at the scriptures. Let's do our homework. And when they did... They accepted Jesus because they looked at it and they compared. And that's exactly what happened with the Russians a thousand years ago. They picked Jesus from a shopping list because the delegate said, not this and not that. But they said, let me tell you, emperor, about this religion. It won't just unify the country. This is the real deal. Their quote was, this is heaven on earth. And they chose Christianity from a shopping list because they dared to compare. And nothing compared. And let me tell you, because that happened, they opened up their borders. They opened up and they had a bunch of missionaries come in. And with a few generations, they became a Christian center. And actually, Moscow was founded by Christians because Kiev was the capital back then. And, actually, and there's a lot more. I'm not getting all the history. But basically, this was a thing that was happening. Fast forward 150 years later, Mongolia. Huge empire as well, bordering Russia. They also want a religion to unify their country. And actually, this is where we get into the story. In 1266, 150 years later, Kublai Khan, who's the grandson of Kangas Khan, sent a request by Marco Polo, and this is church history, he sent a request by Marco Polo to the Christian church in Rome for 100 missionaries to teach Christianity in his courts. Can you imagine the opportunity of a, of a country that doesn't know Jesus asking for missionaries? I would jump at the opportunity and said, we'll send 200. Let's everything, everyone drop what you're doing and let's go. Back then there was only one church and tragically the Pope only sent two friars. Those are two deacons, unordained men. They never made it because of harsh weather. And by the time the first batch of missionaries arrived in Beijing in 1294, 30 years later, Kublai Khan had already died and the Mongols had already turned to Tibetan Buddhism. 700 years have gone by and, 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 and these people have lived and died not knowing about Jesus because of a window missed for 30 years. And I have to ask myself, what were we, not them, what were we doing that was so important in 1266 that we didn't lay down our lives and say, I'll go live my life in another country to witness for Jesus. What were we doing that was so important that we couldn't do that? Jesus knew that there would be a shortage of missionaries, that there would be a shortage. And there's opportunities where we accept the call that God has, and there's other times where the church has dropped the ball. I don't want to be remembered as in people saying, what were they doing in, 12, or in 2022? That they didn't pick up their lives and go when there was an opportunity to go. Yeah. Understand that, that this church, uh, they had an opportunity. They had a window and they dropped the ball. I think of the Macedonian vision, and he, said, and he tells Paul in this vision, would you come and tell me about Jesus? And that's how Paul originally went into Europe. You understand, Paul didn't have to go. Just because someone asks to hear about Jesus doesn't mean someone's going to go. We need to realize that. What I'm going to tell you here today is that there is a shortage of missionaries. Would you pray for workers? 
Would you pray? We were told right now that in France, we're an answer to prayer because they're praying that God would send more missionaries. They have a vision to plant a thousand churches in the next 10 years in France and they need workers. And that's not the only country right now. We don't know how long that window is going to be. There are countries around the world that are asking for missionaries. And I'm saying, who's going to go? Who's going to send? Because we need to go. We need to send, right? I'm going to be ending with, with this application here. Yeah, I think about it. I, I had um, uh, one of our missions directors, Dave Gross, who, uh, who now just resigned that. Uh, but he said that there's a statistic around the world, not just AG, that for every one male missionary, there's six female missionaries. And they're looking at this number and saying, well, why is that the case? Because the reality is we need more female missionaries. But I think what happens is there's actually a lot of good godly men, and even women as well, that God are calling to missions. And they're saying, no, God, that's not for me. I think of what I call the Jonah effect. Understand that Jonah was not a bad guy like Paul. Paul was killing people, okay? He was not a thug like Paul. Jonah was a good, godly man who was a prophet for God that says, Lord, I'll speak for you. I'll be a prophet for you. I'll write a book of the Bible and I'll lead in the city of Jerusalem. I'll I'll lead in Israel. But I won't do it over there. And I think sometimes we can be like Jonah that says, Lord, I'll serve you. I'll worship you. I'll be on the board or I'll, I'll be on staff or I'll just serve in the church on Sundays and I'll be living for you, but not on Monday. Or, you know, Lord, I'll tell my friends and I'll tell my family about you, but I won't tell my coworkers. Or, you know, Lord, you can come into my life and you can have 95% of my life, but there's this one room that you can't go in in my house. There's this one place that you can't have. You know what Jesus says is that if you're not willing, he doesn't say if you if sacrifice, he says if you're not willing to sacrifice all, then you cannot even be my disciple. You cannot even be square one if you can't give them all. I want to tell you that Jesus didn't come to give some 10 easy steps of how to live a better life. Jesus came to make dead men alive again. He wants all of you. So I'm going to encourage you today, as the worship team comes back up and sings another song, I'm going to encourage you, what is it, is that one thing that you're holding on and saying, God, you can have me, except for that one thing? Is it missions? Or is it telling someone else about Jesus? Or is it maybe something that you've been struggling with and you need to give it to God? What is that one thing that you're still holding on to? Let's come before you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you're encouraged by this message. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, visit PainesvilleAG.com.